Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. This is uh, one that I've been putting off doing because, uh, I don't know, I, I, ranking disasters and horror feels a little bit, a lot distasteful. But I have to say this, I don't know, the, the idea of people going in and shooting up a high school is, or, and then there was the, the, the other big um, shooting, Sandy Hook, shooting up a preschool. Um, or a, a, an elementary school, I think is what we call it, the kids. And it's just, I don't know, it seems more horrific. I mean, yeah, let's just move on from ranking disasters because it's not a good thing and just say that I've been putting it off for a little while. I had it in my queue and I'm like, no, I'd rather just do this mafia one or I'd rather just do this one where just one single person went missing or was murdered. So eventually we have to do it though. We move on. It's Columbine. Thank you to, uh, I don't know who wrote this. Thank you to Liam who wrote this script. Uh, if you're new here, welcome. The format is that Liam has written me the script. I'm going to read it. I'm going to add some comments if I so fancy it. And uh, yeah, we'll explore it together, shall we? Murder. The subject of today's show. What does it mean? Murder could simply be taken, in its legal definition, as the unlawful killing of a human being with the intention to kill that human being or cause really serious harm to them. But does that really encompass the impact of murder, though? Is the only impact of murder the life it so cruelly snubs? Murders can have impacts far beyond the unfortunate demise of a victim. They can cast doubt on entire organizations, such as resulted from Harold Shipman. They can ramp up paranoia across entire cityscapes, such as happened with Charles Manson. They can spawn legends such as we saw with Jack the Ripper. Murders ruin lives, they ruin towns, they ruin that sense of safety you feel when you're going around your everyday life. Much like a true crime podcast. <laughs> it's like now I'm like, oh no, there are horrible people in the world. Why did I start a true crime show just as I had children? Why? Today's topic of the casual criminal has not only affected its victims, their families, or the town they lived in, but it has impacted an entire country. Even today, it is synonymous with a single horrific event. Columbine. Yeah, this is... Uh, so I was looking this up a little bit before I recorded today's episode. Uh, no, I didn't want to spoil anything too much. I think it was in relation to another video. And Columbine's not the worst school shooting. It's not the first school shooting. But for some reason, it seems to stand out. I mean, there was Sandy Hook, of course, and Virginia Tech are other ones that stand out in my mind as being, you know, particularly noteworthy. And again, we're stumbling into ranking disasters territory, which I don't like to do. Um, but it does stand out, and I'm not quite sure why. So let's, uh, let's explore. The Bowling Alley. Unfortunately, we must start today's episode with a content warning due to how traumatizing the event was for so many people. Today's episode will be discussing a school shooting where the perpetrators were one child and one young adult, and many of the victims were themselves children. We will be engaging with this event in a respectful way, and we will not be engaging in any detail beyond the detail that we need in order to establish their story. Having said this, I found that particularly when dealing with mass shootings of a certain level of detail has to be included. Eric Harris and Dylan Kleibold not only in vain ended their victims' lives, but they also took great joy in tormenting many of them before killing them. I felt it was best to note that here. Now it's time to set the scene. I felt it was best to note that here. Yeah, as I always say, this podcast is not a gore fest. This is not, this isn't what this show is about. This show is about the crime itself. And yeah, I never started this show wanting it to be a gore fest. And so, yeah, you won't find that here. So, yeah, Liam already said that. I just felt it was necessary to reiterate. Now it's time to set the scene. Littleton, Colorado, is a rather small, sunny town, the 20 most populous municipality in the state of Colorado. Like many towns in the local area, Littleton was founded on the hopes of intrepid gold seekers of the Pikes Peak Gold Rush back in 1859. In 1961, Littleton was twinned with Bayer in Australia, but this is where the innocent history ends for this small town. The remainder of the history written about Littleton is all dominated by today's subject. Littleton has truly become a town that is victim to its most infamous crime. Eric David Harris was born in Wichita, Kansas on April the 9th, 1981. His family relocated often with his father being an airport Air Force transport pilot. In 1993, Eric's family relocated from New York to Littleton on his father's retirement. While in Littleton, Eric would live in rented accommodation with his family for the first three years, and it was at this time that he would meet Dylan Claybold at Ken Carl Middle School. 
Dylan Bennett Claybold, born on September the 11th, 1981, in the nearby city of Lakewood, where his parents were devoted members of the Lutheran Church, in which both Dylan and his older brother Byron attended confirmation classes. At the time, Dylan was noted by several friends as finding the transition to middle school difficult, and it was common knowledge by people who knew the pair that Dylan and Eric would never be far from one another, even often wearing the same caps in the same style. All innocent enough so far, not groups of friends wearing the same clothes, not exactly surprising. Now, it'd be far too simple for me to just tell you why most people think Dylan and Eric carried out the massacre. Instead, I'm going to explore the different sources of evidence we have to their mindset with you. We have quite a lot of information here as to what the criminals were thinking as the time passed. After we explore all of this, we'll then cover the tragic events of that day before exploring the consequences of that event, including reminding us all why the media is the worst invention that humankind has ever come up with. Ah, yes, I'm vaguely familiar with this. The media... Wasn't it... I, I'm. This was mentioned in a... Maybe it was a Casual Criminalist or a Decoding the Unknown podcast. Another show I do if you want to check it out, Decoding the Unknown. Um... That the media was saying, like, oh, they were bullied and all of this stuff, but I think the reality was that they weren't, is they were just monsters. So let's start by exploring the different sources of information we have. Eric kept a blog online where he documented many of his misdeeds throughout his formative years. <laughs> Dude, you write down your crimes or what? In a blog? <laughs> Probably weren't even that many. Like today, I feel like I just get lost in the sea of the internet. Back in the day, how many blogs were there? It would be on this blog that both he and Dylan would muse about their inner thoughts. There were also a set of journals kept by Eric and Dylan where they documented their planning for the upcoming attack and wrote about their role models from history. Included among this list of role models was prom- were prominent Nazis and Charles Manson. Uh-oh. If you want to find more as to how this was a massive red flag, then please go view our casual criminalist on Charles Manson. Yeah, and as for the Nazis, well, you know they were bad. The final and by far the most disturbing record of the pair's inner thoughts are simply referred to as the basement tapes. I have to say, like, yeah, it's a red flag, so like, I, I love Charles Manson, but it also feels like the sort of thing like an edgy teenager who wears too much black would say, and then they'd grow out of it and feel slightly uncomfortable about it later. Be like, oh my god, (laughs) Charles Manson, really? These tapes are referred to in this way as they were discovered in the Harris family basements after the massacre, which also forms the background for most of them. Five videotapes were produced, two published by the press, and three destroyed by the police. If you know where to look, you can even find the two released videos and transcripts of the destroyed ones available online. I strongly recommend against this, as they're very disturbing. Before destruction, the three now-extinct tapes were shown to the victims' families and, of course, the insidious press. Why? Why? If you're going to destroy them, why are you showing them to the press? The final sixth tape is a separate variety known as the Nixon tape that was recorded on the morning of the attack and discovered immediately after it. We will be going through the details of each of these disturbing windows into Eric and Dylan's psyche before covering the actual events of April 20th, 1999. I feel like there's levels, right? Some kid being like, oh yeah, no, who do you admire? Charles Manson. Being like, uh-oh. I mean, just being like, you're a weird kid. But then when you're making tapes and stuff, and I guess we're going to see how dark these tapes are, there's a point where it flips over from like edgy kids to uh, keep an eye on him. Keep an eye on that one. Maybe like liking Charles Manson is enough. I don't know. Charles Manson was a pretty sick dude. One or two big red flags. Both Eric and Dylan had had encounters with the local police before 1996. 15-year-old Eric had created a private website on the relic that is AOL. If you don't know what AOL is, imagine Microsoft Edge, but worse, in every single way. They've never used Microsoft Edge. Microsoft Edge could be legitimately good, but honestly, Internet Explorer was so bad. I don't think I can ever use another Microsoft browser, especially because Chrome exists. Why would we use anything else? As would be hyper-focused upon by the media, this website had originally been created to host levels for the first-person shooter games Doom and Doom 2. However, in time, Eric would create a blog on the website where he would document his misdeeds. This began innocently enough with Eric documenting himself sneaking out of the house to commit relatively simple acts of vandalism, which normally involved nothing beyond lighting fireworks and aiming them at dustbins. Anybody who's grown up in England and remembers a football match can imagine what this looks like. For any foreign listeners or viewers, it has been a long-established tradition in the UK that football fans celebrate a victory, loss, goal, penalty, or entry into a football pitch by lighting a firework and aiming into the dustbin. I had no idea. I, I, I guess I'm obviously I'm British. Um, I just never went. I went to one football match when I was a kid. Uh, a family friend. I must have been. I don't know, like eleven or twelve or something like that. And it was a friends of my parents. They're so like a family friend, and their kids and me were friends. 
and we went to a football match. And I was like, okay. I didn't really like football, but I assumed, okay, this is, you know, it's a good thing to do. I should go do this. And we had to stand the whole time, which just seemed insane to me. It's like an hour long or an hour and a half long or however long a football game is. Plus, I guess there's intermission and stuff, whatever. But we're standing up the whole time. And it was really, like, hard. <laughs> and I'm, like, I'm 12 years old. I should be able to stand up the whole time. But I remember just shuffling around and being like, ah. And I think they scored, like, six goals or something, which is super high for, for football. And I was still, like, never doing this again. <laughs> there were no football. There were no fireworks aimed at bins, though, disappointingly. That would have made it interesting. Leaving the long-established British traditions aside, the important thing to note here is that even in this earliest of offending, we can see the connections form. Eric's first posts about sneaking out of the house to commit vandalism all mention that he did this alongside Dylan. At this point, you may be thinking, all right, Liam, fair enough, they've committed crimes. But why would that be a massive red warning sign? Yeah, this is just, I mean... He's a bit of an idiot. He's writing down his crimes on the internet. But I guess he, you know, this was like, what, late 90s? We'll forgive him for that misdeed. But honestly, if you're writing down crimes in a diary, I mean, okay, if it's vandalism, go ahead. You'll probably read it when you're older and you'll be like, oh, I was so edgy. Um, but if it's proper crimes, don't be writing those down anywhere. <laughs> Definitely not on a blog. Come on. Don't blog your crimes. Well, thank you, Simon, for your insightful and intelligent question. This is a warning sign, as vandalism isn't what got them caught. In 1997, they began posting to the blog instructions on how to construct explosives. But our budding anarchist manifesto enthusiasts weren't done there. Not long after this, Eric began posting murderous fantasies, creatively entitled, All I want to do is kill and injure as many of you as I can, especially a few people like Brooks Brown. Uh-oh. For context, Brown was one of Eric's classmates. Yes, there will be those that argue there was no way to see things coming, but Eric literally made a post stating his exact intentions. Wait, who makes the argument that no one could have seen this coming? What was that quote again? All I want to do is kill and injure as, as many of you as I can, especially Brooks Brown. <laughs> Guys, no one could have seen this coming. At this point, you might come back with... Well, yes, Liam, but you can't expect the police to investigate every weirdo on the internet. And you'd be entirely correct, except for the fact that Brooks Brown's family saw the post, reported the post, and an official police investigation was carried out. A draft affidavit was even written to request a search warrant. Unfortunately, this affidavit was never sent to a judge. If it had been, threats of death are highly likely to mean it would have been granted. It is debatable as to whether Eric and Dylan had begun planning the attack at this stage, but it couldn't have hurt to check. This would unfortunately be only the first big red flag that was missed. Immediately after the attack, the site would become the focus of the media searching for any way to explain the carnage. <laughs> well, they wouldn't have to search very far, would they? All of the declarations of intent to kill would be completely ignored, instead focusing on the original intent of the site being hosting levels of doom. Oh, is this why... Is this one of the OG reasons why people think that video games cause people to shoot, shoot up schools or something? Because this is such a leap media. He's like, you ignore the post that says, I'm going to kill everybody, and you just focus on, like, level one, doom. What you do, go through the gate, use the red key card. Oh, where... And this led the media to be, like, video games cause carnage. Please, come on. Number of people, number of civilians I've killed in Grand Theft Auto. I've said this before. It's really high. It's really, really high. Number of random people I've killed in real life, zero. <laughs> Allegedly. No, definitely zero. I haven't killed anybody. Jesus Christ. The second run-in with the police that both Eric and Dylan faced occurred in 1998. They were arrested for breaking into a white van and stealing tools and computer equipment, which resulted in them later pleading guilty to felony theft. As a result of this, they were both placed on, juvenile, on a juvenile diversion program, meaning they were allowed to continue attending school. While in this program, both were mandated to attend anger management classes, which they were dismissed from early for good behavior. Eric and Dylan had learned from this, however. In both of the above scenarios, they were caught thanks to the blog that posted about the theft on there. They would not make this mistake again. <laughs> I'm amazed they're making it the first time. And again, that would definitely qualify. Like, vandalism, you're going to get a bit of trouble. Felony theft? I don't know why. Oh, felony theft. It's got to be when it's like above a certain amount, right? So the amount they were stealing was valuable. It's like, yo, yo, don't blog about felony theft. That definitely passes the line of, I'm going to look back this and realize I was a bit of a weirdo. To, oh, I've now got a felony record and I'm probably not going to be able to get a job because when you get a job, you have to tick that box saying, I'm a criminal. <laughs> I feel like in a few years, they'll be like, no, you can't discriminate against criminals. Like, yeah, but they're criminals. <laughs> Although I feel like I definitely want to know what the crime was. If it was like murder, 
you're like, uh-oh. <laughs> but if it was like vandalism, I'd be like, all right, how, <laughs> how long ago was this? Don't worry about it. I don't like vandalism, don't get me wrong. I hate vandalism. I hate graffiti, especially. Like, people graffiti the outside of my apartment building, and then someone has to come and paint over it. And it's like, why are we doing this? Why is my money having to paint over your stupid graffiti? And it's not good-looking graffiti, it's just tagging. And I'm like, who does this? What are you doing? Fuck it. Stop it. After the theft prosecution, they continued using their website solely for hosting levels of doom and instead began writing about their thoughts in journals. One of the earliest entries into Eric's journal is most telling of their extremely disturbed mental state. Early on, Eric detailed a plan for the massacre. In this plan, he wrote that after escaping the massacre, he and Dylan would escape to a foreign country or hijack a plane at Denver International Airport and crash it into New York City. Dude. Dylan kept notes even earlier than Eric, however, starting back in March 1997. Dude, do you even know how to fly a plane? What are you gonna do? Just go to a major international airport? Hijack? How are you gonna take it off? How are you gonna make it take off? I guess you could tell the pilots take off. Then when you get to the foreign country, what are you gonna do? They're gonna be waiting for you. You'll be like, turn off the transponder, and the pilots will be like, yeah, we definitely turned off the transponder. There is no transponder. And then they can set the. Uh, the transponder they can set it to like a specific code or something to initiate like a to silently say we're in big trouble and then the, the air traffic controller will be like well okay the plane landed in mexico have the federales meet us down there most because you know what once you've shot up a school it's not going to be like db cooper escaping with money and he was fairly well wanted you're going to be more wanted than that most of these notes have been innocent until just after the incident with the blog. His first mentions of a possible massacre were found in November of that year. It was during this journal period that we got the deepest glimpse into the mind of a killer. I'm not a qualified sociologist, but I do have a history in criminological research. This is news to me! Oh my god, really? One thing we often see with killers is the power fantasy element. Most <laughs> I feel like people would be like, wait, you hardly him and you didn't know? that he had a criminological research background. I'm like, no, I just hire people, they, you know, people email me, that's where I find most of my writers, and I say, you got any samples? And then if the samples are good, hey, that's that's how it works. I'm not looking for new writers now, right now, so please don't email me. There's a wait list on my website if you really want to. Most clearly shown by somebody like Harold Shipman, they have the ultimate power over life and death. We also often see this as an almost sexual excitement for the killers. We see this in Eric. He wrote several times about his sexuality, namely his fantasy of kidnapping, raping, and cannibalizing random women. Are you really writing about this on your blog? I, have n I don't think we've ever come across someone who's written down their crimes, crimes quite so blatantly. The first entries on this were made only a month after Eric began writing in his journal. So at this point, Eric and Dylan have their first run-in with the law. And you might be worried, dear viewer, that they will have grown a few brain cells and are no longer publicizing their intentions. But you'll be absolutely wrong. <laughs> Both Dylan and Eric were known to include their violent inclinations in their schoolwork, most notably in December 1997. <laughs> it's like, yeah, what's your geography project about? Massacres. What are you writing about history? Massacres. <laughs> what, what's your physical education uh, project? Massacres. <laughs> Red flags, maybe. Eric received a creative writing project that required him to write a poem about school life. The title of his poem was almost fittingly Guns in School, which was a poem from the perspective of a bullet involved in a school shooting. This is really dark. Dylan similarly wrote a short story about a man killing students, an event that worried a teacher so much that she told his parents. It should be noted that Eric's poem did not result in any sort of punishment or sanction. It is not known whether Dylan's parents took any action, but it is known that they did not report this to the police. After all, their son had only expressed the intention to kill a teammate three months ago, so that still can't be relevant, right? You gotta go to, like, therapy, you gotta get to a counsellor, and they'll make an assessment about whether they need to tell the police because someone's life is in danger, you need to do that. If, you're, if you've seen something similar in someone you know or your kids and you're watching this right now, you need to do that. It's just a good thing to do. Please do that. I'm sure, chances are, everything's going to be totally fine and it's just stupid, edgy kid shit, but it might not be. So do yourself a favor. Do the world a favor. Just get checked out. It's not a big deal. Okay, at this point, I may be a bit harsh to the parents. I do want to recognize that any parent is going to view their child with hope, and it's very understandable why parents in these situations don't alert anybody. They're just hoping it's nothing, but it's still painful to see how close Dylan Eric came to having this entire tragedy halted. Yeah, again, just to reiterate, it's probably nothing. Like, parents, you you have super strong hopes about your ch children, and they're probably fine, and you'll take them to a therapist or a psychologist 
psychiatrist or whatever. And they'll be like, it's nothing to worry about. It's just teenage angst. But, but just in case, just in case, it's like, you know, oh yeah, I got that weird mole that looks a little bit funny. Chances are everything's totally fine. But, you know, still get it checked out. Speaking of that, if you've got a funny mole, go get it checked out. <laughs> Saving lives today, whistle boy. There were unfortunately more warning signs in their other school projects. In history, Eric wrote a paper on the Nazis glorifying their ideas of selecting who would live and die. And Dylan had written a paper on Charles Manson glorifying the power he held over the people around him. Again, we can see the growing fascination with having power in both of these examples. The most damning warning sign, however, came in psychology. Eric was asked to write a paper about his dreams and aspirations. In response, Eric wrote a paper detailing his dream of going on a school shooting with Dylan. In this paper, there would be frightening levels of similarity with the actual attack, including detailed descriptions of several experimental bomb detonations. This paper resulted in no action. Neither did the paper on the Nazis or even Charles Manson. I feel like the Charles Manson one is the least worrying one glorifying the Nazis slightly more worrying, explicitly detailing a school shooting that you want to go on with your mate who goes to that school is the biggest red flag I've ever seen, and how on earth is there no action here? It's wildly incompetent. The final public activities Dylan and Eric engaged in that could be construed as a warning sign were their yearbooks. For the 1998 yearbook, Dylan wrote a note for Eric, killing enemies, blowing up stuff, killing cops. My wrath for January's incident will be godlike, not to mention our revenge in the commons. The commons was the slang term for the school cafeteria, which would soon be a key location for the upcoming carnage. Again, this yearbook comment was widely seen by others in the school, and yet again, no action was taken. So far, we've covered what Eric and Dylan posted online in their schoolwork and in their private journals. Now we shall cover the infamous basement tapes. If you, if you felt that what we saw previously was a warning sign, then this is a flare gun that's already been fired twice, missed, and hit a pig that's currently screaming into a megaphone. I feel we were already there. I already feel like we were at DEFCON 4 or whatever. Is there a DEFCON 5? No, it goes the other way, isn't it? It's like DEFCON 1 is the biggest DEFCON. We were already there! Liam, how could we go further? There is, however, even more material that gives a good lord. Good lord, you're writing down your crimes all over the show, guys. It gives us windows, uh, window into the minds of these soon-to-be killers. Both Eric and Dylan were taking video production classes at school. Uh-oh. Anyone who produces videos, gotta watch out for them. If you're just listening to this, it also goes out on YouTube, so that's a very funny joke I made. It also goes out as a video. You can watch it on YouTube. Yay! During these classes, a school-owned camera would be loaned to students who could film anything. The school did not check what was recorded by students at all, which resulted in the five basement tapes. The five tapes are Hitman for Hire, Rampant Revenge, Radioactive Clothing, Rebs Tape, and a tape only known as Evidence Item 265. The first two of these may be found in the dark parts of the internet. The first minutes of Radioactive Clothing may be found, and the transcripts of both Rebs Tape and Evidence Item 265 can also be found online. I'm not going to be going into great detail over each of these tapes, the sake of this video not lasting two hours. Instead, I'll be going over each briefly and letting you know the most important details from each one. The first relevant tape filmed by the pair was Hitman for Hire. Hitman for Hire was a fictional story that placed Dylan and Eric as Hitman working for the Trenchcoat Mafia. In the video, they walk through the school in black trench coat with fake guns extorting money for protecting people from bullies. This video and its footage are especially chilling as they wore the same outfits on the day of the massacre. This video was produced by Eric and Dylan for a school assignment for business class in which they were tasked with making an ad for a small local business. I guess extortion counts? <laughs> Yet again, it is amazing how nobody thought of reporting them to the police. Well, this can just be a... This I'm not... There's some stuff which in retrospect seems extremely worrying. Writing a piece glorifying the Nazis or explicitly saying how your goal in life is to go on a school shooting is far more worrying than this out of context thing which without the context of the school shooting later happening i don't feel is that big of a warning sign it could even be seen as possibly amusing forgive me for saying that if the police had been called and investigated at all then they would have discovered an already growing stockpile of guns Yes, that is a warning sign. The second tape which the pair filmed was Rampant Range. In this tape, they went to a makeshift firing range and practiced using the guns that would be used in the real massacre. Toward the end of this video, it cut to Eric's home, where Eric then forced Dylan to say a goodbye message to his family before he then ends the recording with, That's it. Sorry. Goodbye. At the end of this tape, there is a second piece of footage spliced in which showed an image of the letters CHS along with a bomb with a lit fuse. The word clue was written under this image in bold, and it was later determined by the police that this last bit of footage was taken about only 30 minutes 
before the attack. The third tape that was filmed was the tape only known as Evidence Item 265. This is the first of the tapes that the authorities destroyed rather than released. In the transcript of this tape, we can see the pair discuss their plans, referring to it as their masterpiece. They also referred to individuals who helped them get their weapons, such as John and Jane Doe, before discussing individual classmates who they hoped would be there when they launched their attack. The final tape filmed before the attack was Reb's tape, Reb being the nickname for Eric. In this tape, they discuss how they'd been planning the attack for just over eight months and say that they're on their way to get the rest of the gear. In this tape, Eric also shows his journal, which he refers to as Writings of God. <laughs> Modest. The tape ends with Eric showing the drawings he made at the end of his journal. These drawings have never been disclosed publicly, but they're referred to by the police as the Doom drawings. The fifth tape is Radioactive Clothing. This tape has been released in part and is considered to be part of the basement tapes as it was found on the same tape as Reb's tape, although I personally do not class it in the same category as it was only a school project from the year before. Interestingly, this tape showed that not every school project Dylan and Eric completed was a gore enthusiast's wet dream. The tape told the story of a town being struck by a nuclear weapon and all the clothes in town coming to life. The clothes would then interact with each other in a way to demonstrate how different cliques at school were separated by just their clothing. An example often pointed to is that the jocks at Columbine were known for wearing white caps. So that ends our discussion of how we know the level of detail we do. I need to place all of this information out before the shooting for one simple fact. The Colombo massacre is one which countless people have guessed at Dylan and Eric's reasoning. It is also one that people have said was sudden and out of the blue. I hope that showing all of this information can show how, at least in my view, these two were simply unhinged people who idealized power. Or that secondly, there were just so many red flags that Lenin would be jealous. I also wanted to place the information first, as I've seen lots of people discuss the basement tapes but not engage with what you'll find in them or what they tell us. Yeah, I think this is some great exposition. I know we're a good half an hour into the show and we haven't really got into the event yet, but I feel laying out all this stuff beforehand, well, probably not brilliant for like my watch time retention on YouTube, is important to telling a good story. So, well, thank you for still being here. April the 20th, 1999. On the morning of April the 20th, 1999, Eric and Dylan loaded Eric's car with a small arsenal of weapons. In the eight months before the attack, they had gathered two 9mm firearms, two 12-gauge shotguns, and made a total of 99 separate explosives, ranging from pipe bombs to Molotov cocktails. Eric had even attempted to create his own version of napalm for use in a homemade flamethrower, which thankfully failed. One of the 9mm rifles and both of the shotguns had been bought at a gun show for Dylan and Eric by a mutual friend, Robin Anderson. Anderson would later claim that she only believed they wanted the guns for target shooting, and despite buying the guns illegally for two, at the time, underage individuals, she was not charged with a crime. Um, how about you get charged with the crime of selling guns to underage individuals? That seems like a fairly major crime. I know this is America and the, the, there's a bit of a hard-on for guns, and I don't really have a problem with guns myself, but it does seem we shouldn't be selling them to teenagers. That just seems, that just seems like a good idea. After loading their arsenal into Eric's car, they built a makeshift car bomb out of two 20-pound propane canisters. After finishing up at Eric's house, they then made their way to a nearby Texaco gas station. Here they were seen at 9.12am on our security camera, purchasing more propane canisters. From Texaco, it's believed that both Eric and Dylan made their way to the school, and once there, they placed several makeshift bombs around the ground. The car bomb was set on a makeshift timer, and they placed their backpacks in the cafeteria, with each having a timer-detonated bomb in them, and they also placed bombs in a field about three miles from the school. This final bomb was intended to start a fire and distract the emergency services. When they finished placing their bombs, they each changed clothes into the black duster coats that would gain such an unfortunate association that day. The next time we see either of them is at 11.15 in the junior student parking lot, where Eric had returned separately to Dylan after placing the bomb in the field. Upon return, he would be spotted by classmate Brooks Brown, who you may remember was the same classmate Eric had threatened to kill two years before in 1997. Probably soured that relationship because she found out about it. I can't believe nothing was done about that. You threatened to murder someone. What the f***? Brooks made his way. Oh, I assume Brooks was a girl for some reason. Is Brooks a boy's name? <laughs> Brooks made his way over to Eric's car and asked why he had missed a test, which he had sat that morning. It was then said that Eric gave his harrowing response. Eric simply said, It doesn't matter anymore, Brooks. I like you now. Get out of here. Go home. 
Fortunately, Brooks and Eric had recently patched things up in the months leading up to the shooting. On hearing Eric's ominous statement, Brooks did not need much convincing as he had already planned to skip the next class. As a result, Brooks left the school grounds immediately. As he was walking on foot, though, he would be close enough to hear what was about to happen. By now, Dylan had arrived, and he made his way past Brown on the way to Eric. When they regrouped, each made their final preparations as they armed themselves by placing their guns in homemade holsters which were hidden under their duster coats. They also filled backpacks and duffel bags with more ammunition and pipe bombs. Finally, each made sure that their shirts were visible, with Eric saying, Natural Selection in black lettering, and Dylan saying, Wrath in red lettering. This was the no-going-back moment. The moment they had been building towards for eight months. The massacre's start had luckily not gone to plan, however, as none of the bombs in the cafeteria had detonated. At that time, there were 488 students in the packed cafeteria, an unknown number in the library above. The bombs had been placed next to the support beams, and it is highly likely that had they gone off, they would have dropped the library onto the cafeteria. Thankfully, it appeared that neither Eric nor Dylan paid enough attention in chemistry class. Meanwhile, 17-year-old Rachel Scott and her friend Richard Costardo, also 17, were having lunch on a stretch of grass not far from the west entrance to the school. While having their lunch, they noticed what they thought was a prank. Dylan had thrown a pipe bomb towards the car park that had partially detonated, causing a lot of smoke, and unfortunately, at this point in time, nobody thought anything of it. Witness reports then state that Eric and Dylan were heard shouting, Go, go! At which point they pulled their guns from their coats and began shooting. Rachel Scott became the first victim of the massacre, being shot four times by Eric's carbine. Costaldo was then shot eight times, causing him to fall unconscious to the ground, and he has been paralyzed below the chest ever since. Next, Eric aimed at a nearby outdoor staircase to the west that three students, Daniel Rothborough, 15, Sean Graves, 15, and Lance Kirkland, 16, were currently using. They believed the gunshots were part of a prank involving paintball, so they remained on the staircase directly below the shooters. Eric opened fire and instantly killed Daniel Rothborough, killing, leaving Kirkland and Graves seriously injured. It was now that the alarms went up, where at the same time William David Sanders, 47, who heard the shooting, was in the cafeteria and instantly began warning and evacuating students. Whereas most people's initial reaction would have been to flee, Sanders was not. His heroic actions that day would save the lives of around 100 students. Legend. I hope he survives. The shooters now turned their attention to a hill opposite them, where five students sat. As they fired upon the sitting students, they ended up hitting two of the students, Michael Johnson, 15, and Mark Taylor, 16. Johnson was hit in the face, but managed to run away, and Taylor was hit several times in the chest, falling to the ground, where he faked death for the remainder of the massacre. Dylan now made his way towards the cafeteria, down the stairs. On the steps, he came up to Lance Kirkland again, where Kirkland was reported to ask for help, and in response, Dylan said, Sure, I'll help you and then he shot Kirkland in the face with his shotgun, which would lead Kirkland to have a catastrophic injury to his jaw, but he would fortunately survive this execution-style shot. Graves, one of the boys from the stairwell that was injured, had crawled to the entrance of the cafeteria, where he had covered his face in blood to play dead. He recalled that Dylan stepped over him to get to the cafeteria, and when he did this, he heard Dylan say, Sorry, dude. When Dylan entered the cafeteria, he did not shoot any of the students still in the cafeteria, and it was later speculated that he only went there to check on the bombs whilst not under Eric's watchful gaze. Meanwhile, Eric, who had stayed at the top of the stairs, shot and wounded Anne-Marie Hochhalter, 17, as she attempted to flee, which left her paralyzed. After that, Dylan reunited with Eric as they attempted to shoot students in a nearby soccer field which they where they failed to hit anybody. Winners' reports at this stage say that the pair were heard saying, This is what we always wanted to do. This is awesome. Inside the school, art teacher Patty Nielsen, 35, and student Brian Anderson, 17, were making their way to the entrance. They believed some prank was taking place, or that two perpetrators were filming some video and intended to tell them to knock it off. Despite their hopeful thoughts, as Anderson opened the first set of double doors, the two gunmen shot in his direction. The shattered glass injured both him and Nielsen, leading them both to run for the library. When they eventually got to the end of the hall and entered the library, Nielsen died not, dialed 911 and Anderson hid in a nearby magazine room, collapsing from his injuries. After dialing 911, Nielsen hid under a library desk and hoped that the gunmen would not follow. The time was now 11.22am. The police had been alerted and the school's custodian, Deputy Neil Gardner, had now been alerted to what was going on. From there, Gardner made his way to the senior parking lot where he arrived at 11.24am. He spotted Eric at the front entrance and took cover behind his car to open fire. He fired four rounds before Eric fired back ten, and then after returning fire, Eric could not be seen and Gardner believed he had hit him. In reality, Eric was reloading and soon fired another four rounds at Gardner, forcing him to retreat. It was now that Gardner reported on the police radio that shooters entered the school and that he needed backup. I think, just comment it, Nowadays, 
there's a lot more awareness about this. And I, I did think this wasn't the first big school shooting, but I might have been wrong in that fact, because now if someone starts letting off a gun, people, you know, they immediately will be like, just in case, maybe it's a prank, maybe it's a prank, but it's probably not. Let's, you know, let's run just in case it's not, or let's fight back. Now Eric and Dylan made their way into the school. Eric had shot 47 times and Dylan only five. Again, the power dynamic of the pair, with Eric being the leader, was on full display. While making their way through the north hallway of the school, they shot at anybody they saw and threw numerous pipe bombs. They missed every student they shot, except for Stephanie Munson, 17, who was shot in the ankle, who was able to walk out of the school. After this, they noticed that numerous students had made their way towards the library, so they now made their way toward that library, which is where the bloodiest part of this massacre would take place. At this point, Dave Sanders and two custodians were in the school cafeteria evacuating students. After the cafeteria was evacuated, Sanders made his way up the stairs to the library hallway. Sanders is the legend who was evacuating people from the cafeteria earlier and saved maybe a hundred lives. His personal mission was to try and evacuate as much of the school as he could. Whilst making his way to the library, he encountered an unnamed student nearby, and he gestured for the students in the library to stay where they were. However, as Sanders and the unnamed student left the library, they encountered Eric and Dylan as they both approached the library from the north. Both instantly turned to run, but Eric and Dylan shot at them. Eric hit Sanders twice in the back and neck, but both narrowly missed the student who then ran into a nearby science room and warned everybody to hide. Sanders, however, collapsed from his injuries in the same hallway he was shot in. Dylan walked over to Sanders and tossed a pipe bomb at him, which failed to detonate before returning to Eric. As Dylan and Eric made their way along the hallway, Sanders would be dragged into the nearby science classroom and first aid would be attempted on him. The students and teachers in the classroom reportedly tried everything to keep Sanders speaking, but they sadly could only do so much. Sanders would succumb to his injuries sometime before the end of the massacre. Silence in the library. At 11.29 a.m., Eric and Dylan entered the library. At this point, four members of staff and 52 students were in the library. Eric fired his shotgun immediately upon entry at a nearby desk. Splinters from this desk injured student Evan Todd, 16, who had recently taken cover there as Dylan and Eric approached. After this, they made their way to the two rows of computers in the library where Carl Velasquez, 16, was sitting. Velasquez was disabled and unable to move to even try and escape Dylan's shotgun, which was then fired at point-blank range, executing Velasquez. They then placed down their ammunition bags and reloaded their weapons before walking around the computer rows, hunting for victims. At this point, there was a lull in the shooting for the two deranged killers to reveal some of their plans. They called for everybody in the library to stand up, warning them that the library was going to blow up soon. Dylan also declared that anybody in a white cap was dead. As we saw earlier in the basement tape, radioactive clothing wearing a white cap was a tradition for the Columbine sports team's members. It was reported that many wearing these caps began to try and hide them after Dylan's declaration, but none of the students stood up. At this point, Dylan and Eric fired again at the recently arrived police through the library windows. The police then returned fire. Nobody was injured in this exchange. From there, Dylan removed his coat and fired his shotgun at a nearby table, injuring Patrick Ireland, 16, Daniel Steepleton, 15, and Mackay Hall, 16. Eric was now patrolling the lower row of computer desks and found Stephen Carno, 14. After finding this young teen, Eric got on one knee and fired a single shot with his shotgun, mortally wounding Carnell. At the adjacent computer desk, he fired a shot at Casey Rugsager, 17. The shot passed through her right shoulder and severed a major artery. When she gasped in pain, Eric said, Quit your bitching. Eric then made his way to another table where Casey Bernal, 17, and Emily Wyant, 17, also were hiding. A quick peekaboo was said by Eric before he shot Bernal dead with his shotgun, but because of how he held the shotgun one hand, the recall meant the shotgun hit his face and broke his nose. Good. Next, Eric made his way towards a desk where Brie Pascal was sitting, 17. She had not hidden under the desk, but had remained in her seat. Eric asked her if she wanted to die, which prompted her to beg for her life. Eric reportedly responded that everyone's going to die. When Dylan told Eric to shoot her, he responded, No, we're going to blow up the school anyway. It was at this point that Eric noticed Patrick Ireland, one of the boys hiding under the table Eric had shot at after shooting at the police, giving aid to Mackay Hall. Ireland's head had risen above the table, giving Dylan the perfect chance to shoot him, hitting him twice in the head. Ireland was knocked unconscious, but miraculously survived. Dylan then made his way towards another table where he found Isaiah Scholes, 18, Matthew Ketcher, 16, and Craig Scott, 16, the younger brother of Rachel Scott. Upon finding them, Dylan called to Eric that he had found an N-word. He did not 
use the phrase N-word. He then began to try and pull Scholes out from under the table. The two taunted Scholes for a few seconds before both firing shots at him under the table. They killed Scholes and Ketcher, but Scott managed to survive by hiding in the blood of his friends and feigning death. Eric then yelled to the rest of the library, who's ready to die next? He then threw a pipe bomb towards where Hall, Steepleton, and the now unconscious Ireland had taken cover. For a moment, it landed on Steepleton's thigh, but Hall quickly managed to throw it a safer distance away. Dylan and Eric then made their way to the far end of the library, attempting to topple a bookshelf on the way. Eric then shot towards the closest table to him and injured Mark Kinton, 17. He then turned and fired his shotgun at a table. This happened to be hiding Lisa Crutes, 18, Laura Townsend, 18, and Valin Schnur, 18. All three were injured by this, and then Dylan, with his automatic pistol, fired more shots, killing Townsend. At this point, Valin Schnur began screaming, Oh my God which Dylan asked her if she believed in God. After this strange interaction, Dylan then commented that God is gay before reloading and walking away. Eric, meanwhile, had made his way to another table and fired twice, injuring Nicole Nolan, 16, and John Tomlin, 16. As Tomlin crawled out from under the desk, Eric shot him repeatedly, killing him. Eric now doubled back on himself and returned to where Townsend lay dead. Kelly Fleming, 16, had also sat at a table similar to Pascal due to a lack of space. Eric shot her once without uttering a word, killing her. He then fired again at Townsend's body, injuring Crutes again and then wounding Jenna Park, 18. The two shooters then returned to the center of the library where they reloaded. After reloading, Eric pointed his gun below the table, but the student he was aiming at had moved and as such he had to aim again. At this point he said, Identify yourself. At which point John Savage, 17, a friend of Dylan's, identified himself. Savage asked Dylan what they were doing, to which Dylan responded, Oh, just killing people. Savage then asked if they were going to kill him, at which point Dylan said no and told him to run. Savage promptly did, at which point Eric shot Daniel Mauser, 15, who had been hiding at the same table. After injuring Mauser, he then grabbed Eric's leg and attempted to pull him to the ground. Eric shot him once more and killed him. They now both moved throughout the library, shooting randomly. They injured Jennifer Doll, 17, and Austin Eubanks, 17, before fatally wounding Cory Deputa, 17, at 11.35. Deputa will be the final victim of the massacre. Ten people had died in the library, and 12 had been wounded. After this, they cornered Evan Todd, who was wearing a white cap. Dylan asked if he was a jock, to which Todd replied, No. Then Dylan responded that they don't like jocks. Dylan continued his interrogation before asking if Eric wanted to kill him. Eric seemed to be paying little attention and told Dylan it was time to head to the commons. At 11.36, Dylan and Eric left the library. Over the course of 17 minutes, they'd killed 13 people and injured 24. From there, they made their way back to the cafeteria, where the most famous still image of the event was taken, which was of Eric as he fired at a propane tank in, the tank in an attempt to ignite it. Over the next 30 minutes, they would patrol the corridors, firing wildly into the barricaded rooms that surrounded them. At noon, they re-entered the library, which had now been evacuated. They made their way to the window and began firing at the police. The police returned fire, and again, nobody was injured in the exchange. At 12.08, both Eric and Dylan sat with their backs to a bookshelf and killed themselves. Eric with a single shot from his shotgun, and Dylan from his automatic pistol. Their journals indicated that they had originally wanted to go out in that final shootout. And with that, the Columbine High School massacre was finally over. The Blame Game Columbine is a word that no longer refers to a place, it refers to an atrocity. Columbine conquered the memory of both its school and town. There was, however, one other major impact of Columbine, which was people trying to work out why. Why did this terrible event occur? Because these guys are sick. Because they're psychos. It's not because they played too much Doom. They're just broken. Throughout the next coming years, even up to today, people have debated as to what inspired Dylan and Eric. No story of Columbine would be complete without speaking about this. To this extent, I'll give you each possibility as neutrally as possible, but I will only give my opinion on the two most ridiculous theories. No, you can also expect my opinion as well. <laughs> I can't keep my mouth shut. We will start with the most ridiculous theory of what led to Columbine. This is a theory that emerged soon after the massacre, thanks to the wonderful media. That is the theory that Eric and Dylan murdered 13 of their classmates and injured another 24 because they played video games which themselves had violent elements. This theory seems entirely predicated on the fact that the website which hosted the threats of death, death against Brooks Brown also hosted levels of doom. This theory gained massive popularity when now disbarred lawyer and scumbag, allegedly, Jack Thompson appeared on 60 Minutes, an American TV show which discusses political questions. Thompson attempted to sue several video game companies over numerous 
numerous school shootings as things as they happened through the years. On 60 Minutes, he even said that playing a first-person shooter would make children into the next Dylan or Eric. Some may ask why. I'm being so harsh on this view to this, I simply state that the vast majority of behavioral psychologists agree that violent video games do not lead to violence. <laughs> Why should we listen to them? We should listen to the disbarred lawyer. <laughs> Obviously, he knows what's up. No, that was sarcasm. Let's listen to the psychologists. On the contrary, the evidence states that violent video games give an outlet for violence and have no part in causing violence, and that Jack Thompson was an individual who preyed on families, a family's loss to gain a reputation doesn't it? Making up lies to get attention to your media platform. Allegedly. <clears throat> Alex Jones. <coughs> Sorry, what? I class him alongside those quacks who offer to contact bereaving families who lost loved ones to just make a quick buck. I'll also mention that Eric was reported to have compared the massacre to Doom at one point, but he also compared the massacre to the LA riots, Oklahoma bombing, World War II, and the Vietnam War. In the same statement, I don't see anybody saying those caused the violence. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what? We should never discuss World War II, the Vietnam War, the Oklahoma bombing, the LA riots. We can't discuss those in history class because uh, they might encourage people to be violent. It's obvious nonsense. The second theory that emerged, which I'll happily refer to as utterly ridiculous, was the theory that the massacre was caused by Marilyn Manson. And as always, we can thank the media for this. Wait, Marilyn Manson is in like uh, that emo singer guy or like, I don't know what sort of music he sings. It's not my son. Didn't he recently get in trouble? Didn't he assault someone or sexually assault someone or, I mean, <laughs> if he didn't, <laughs> whoops, <laughs> allegedly. The media made claims immediately after the massacre that Dylan and Eric were wearing t-shirts during the massacre, which depicted Manson, which was a plain old lie. They further ran headlines such as killers worshipped rock freak Manson and devil worshipping maniac told kids to kill. Speculation among the media reportedly even led some people to believing that Manson was the sole inspiration for the attack. This led to Manson being heavily criticized by individuals ranging from Leonard Skinner to Michigan State Senator Dale Shugars and several religious figures. I'm Look, Marilyn Manson's probably used to criticism from religious figures, isn't he? This is despite the fact that friends of Dylan and Eric have said that they weren't even major fans of Manson. For Manson's part, he replied in an op-ed in Rolling Stone magazine where he defended both himself and video games and blamed the political influence of the National Rifle Association, but also said, yeah, <laughs> it is amazing deflection, isn't it? This has nothing to, this has nothing to do with guns. This is an act, this is a travesty of video games causing violence to children. It's like, yeah. How about we work against not, uh, about not selling guns to children? Mm, maybe, maybe good idea. NRA, Jesus Christ. When asked what he'd say to the killers, he replied, wait, who? Oh, Manson. I wouldn't say anything, I'd just listen. Manson went on to say that in his view, the primary cause here were two disturbed individuals, nothing else. And in that, Manson seems to be correct. I'll also mention now that as for gun control versus the NRA debate, they have never been blamed for Columbine. Instead, people tend to argue that they enabled a state of affairs that led to Columbine. As such, I won't be opening that can of worms here, where we're speaking only about what people have said is to blame. Also, the gun control versus NRA debate, I always feel that that's misrepresented because there's... It's not gun control versus the NRA. It's gun control versus guns being allowed. As as far as I'm aware, the NRA is like more of a, you know, they're very pro-gun. Whereas a lot of people are just like, yes, I think people should be able to own guns. Am I a member of the NRA? Hell no. Those guys are crazy. <laughs> it's like, it's not one or the other. It's, it's, it's gray, isn't it? There are two other primary theories as to what is to blame. The first being medication. Certain opponents of modern psychiatry have said that Eric's medication may have been what led to the shooting. In his autopsy, they found a large amount of Luvox in his bloodstream, which is an antidepressant that was prescribed to him. The claim is in... E the, the, wait, this is so... Sh he must have been to a doctor to get that prescribed. How has the doctor not picked up on the fact that this guy's going to kill a lot of people? What's going on? The claim is that, in essence, these excessive medications led to the shootings. However, opponents of this simply point out that thousands are medicated and they don't generally go on mass-murdering rampages. Yes, of course. The final suggested blame comes from the FBI. The FBI posited the view that Eric was the person to blame. I know, shock horror. You mean to tell me that the murderer might be to blame here? What upside-down world do we possibly live in? Specifically, the FBI identified Eric as a typical psychopath, and he felt joy by exerting power and dominance over others and felt a lack of emotions. 
He felt a lack of emotions. Kind of an irony in that statement. He was heavily medicated for depression, as stated, but the FBI viewed this as more evidence to his mindset. The FBI's view, and the view of a majority of commentators, is that Eric was the leader who dragged Dylan with him. On this, we do see that Dylan shot far fewer people than Eric, the clearest example being when he entered the cafeteria and shot nobody. The FBI's explanation for Dylan's involvement is to say that he went along with the idea as a way of killing himself. There have been opponents to this idea, though the clearest opposition being the fact that Dylan had been the first to write about the massacre in their journals. Despite this, many people still believe that Eric was the leader and Dylan the follower. In truth, from viewing all the evidence myself, I've come to the view that the only people to blame for Columbine are Eric Harris and Dylan Claybold. They were two disturbed individuals who hated society and took that out in the most hateful way they could think of. There were plenty of warning signs, all of which were missed, and because they were missed, those two scumbags did the unthinkable. Wrap up. And there we have it. That's all, folks. The Columbine High School Massacre. I've only one request for everyone watching or reading this. I've included a list of victims in the first appendix. Everybody knows the names of the murderers, but would struggle to name the victims. I think then that's wrong. Please reframe Columbine. No longer think of Eric and Dylan, but instead think of the victims. Think of the 12 young people who lost their lives and the teacher who died protecting them. And think of the 24 others who have lived with their injuries ever since. Dismembered appendices. At this point, we're going to list all of the victims in the order they died. I also want to mention that some true crime podcasts list the perpetrators here as they killed themselves. I will not. Eric Harris and Dylan Clybold are not victims. They're murderers, and they should be remembered as such. The deaths. Rachel Scott. Daniel Robau. William David Sanders. Carl Velasquez. Stephen Kerno, Cassie Bernal, Azar Scholes, Matthew Kector, Laura Townsend, John Tomlin, Kelly Fleming, Daniel Mouser, and Cory Deputa. Appendix 2. One of the reasons I've rallied so hard against remembering the perpetrators here is that we've seen a deadly effect from beyond the grave. There are numerous examples of killers who have said they were inspired by Eric and Dylan, including the recent school shootings committed by Demetrius Pagotis in 2018 that resulted in 10 dead. This effect has become so recognized that it has been coined by sociologists as the Columbine effect. If anybody wants to read more on it, there's a Wikipedia page that lists all the killings inspired by Columbine. On the page, if you were to count how many victims had died from the shootings caused by this effect, you'd find 269 dead. Appendix 3. Many have associated the song Pumped Up Kicks, released by Foster the People in 2010 with the Columbine shooting. This is in part due to similarity with the music video and a simulated school shooting, and secondly, as the bassist's cousin was actually in the library at Columbine where the massacre occurred. This association has led to people misreporting the white hats as white trainers, which are referenced by the song. The band has, however, gone on record saying that this association was never intentional. Appendix 4 to anybody who wants to learn more about the Columbine High School Massacre, there's no shortage of sources online, ranging from the award-winning Bowling for Columbine by Michael Moore, which I personally think is overrated and has a few inaccuracies, to an array Michael Moore? No, never. Uh, to an array of TED Talks given by Sue Kleibold, mother of Dylan. I would warn, however, there are graphic images on the internet reporting to be of this shooting. To my knowledge, no pictures of the interiors of the school survived, and they're all fakes. But this does not make them any less harrowing. Also, having viewed the basement tapes to make the segment on them accurate, I strongly advise avoiding them at all costs. And that's where we end today's video. No plugs here. This is just... Yeah, let's just end it. Thanks for watching. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.